All right, well, so I hope you're feeling energized. Or you might be feeling more tired after this. Some people say, I can't wait to go back to work so I can get some rest. But one thing we know is that humanity is energized when they feel like they're part of something. We've seen it like on CNN, like as we've been CNN. CNN, yeah. We're going to say CNN. I saw it this morning, as a matter of fact. When we see on a news network, when we see people pitching in into the wee hours of night, helping others in Kentucky or Tennessee clean up from the the ravages of the tornadoes, you just sense there's this togetherness. You sense there's this purpose. And when you talk to them, they're, they're heartbroken, but they're energized. Humanity is energized when they feel as though they're part of something. When people feel as though they're part of something, it infuses their days with purpose and meaning. And brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ by faith, I'm here to tell you that you are part of something. You are. You are part of something huge. You are part of something eternal. You are part of something supernatural. You are part of the mission of God. Rejoice in that, brothers and sisters. We just finished a season in which we celebrated the incarnation from the pulpit. Still celebrating it in other ways. The coming of God to take on human flesh, to live as the last Adam, to live lives that we were all supposed to live, to live a life that ended in death to pay for our sin, all the ways we haven't lived the way we are supposed to live. The babe in a manger came on a mission. The babe in a manger lives. He dies. He's resurrected. He ascends. He sends his spirit, and he calls people to join him on his mission. And if you are part of the body of Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you are in Christ by faith, you are part of the mission. And what does that mean? That means your life every day is infused with purpose and with meaning. Every day. Every day has a purpose that is set by the one who created you. Your daily purpose is set by the one who rescued you, not the circumstances of the day. You are on mission. Now the book we've been studying, the book of Acts, is a recording of the beginning of the mission of God through the new covenant people of God. So I'm, I, if I let you behind the scenes, and this is where I, I had some slides ready, so I'm going I'm to have to kind of adjust on the fly because I was going to rely. Hey, that was a rhyme. I'm going to adjust on the fly because I was going to rely. That was my FM voice. Whenever we, whenever we have a preaching team meeting, which often turns violent, we discuss, we discuss the upcoming, we discuss the upcoming message, and we, whoever's preaching that week fills out a sheet to kind of get our thoughts ordered, and then that sheet is kind of the, the focus of our discussion. And the first question on that sheet is, what is the main idea, God's message in this book? 
talking about Acts. And very simply, it says, or the, the answer that we've been building our sermons around is that Luke completes his gospel. Remember, Luke wrote a gospel. Luke completes his gospel by telling the early story of fulfilling the Great Commission and spreading the church, the kingdom, the gospel, and the word of God. That's what we've been studying for numerous months, brothers and sisters. And since we are continuing the very same mission, we're part of that mission. You guys may have heard of a, uh, 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 oh, hey, yeah. So, hey, here, watch this. This is, this is how Luther used to advance slides. Ready? Yeah, there it is. There it is. So you may have heard like of a, a church planting organization. It's a, a, a family of churches called Acts 29. And the reason behind that name is the fact that they believe today that we are just carrying forward the mission. We are living out an extension of the book of Acts in many ways. In many ways. So we know that this book of Acts is a, carrying, a recording of the carrying out of the Great Commission. And we remember the Great Commission. Watch this, watch this. Ah, yeah, you remember the Great Commission. You've heard it. If you've been in church for a while, you've heard this. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Why? Because Jesus is king. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus is king. Jesus is king. When we celebrate the incarnation, we're celebrating the birth of a king. And all authority has been given to him. And we go with that authority, bringing people into that mission of worship of the king. That's what we're doing. And because the message of Jesus is king flies in the face of Caesar is king, what's going to happen? Trouble. Pushback. Read Psalm 2 and you could, you could discern the times quite well. But as we go, look at that last clause. Look at that last clause of the Great Commission. It is glorious. I just want you to look at it and chew on it for a minute. He says, as we go, the one who loved us, the one who died for us, is the same one that every millisecond of every day is with us. He's with us. We see so much of what this mission is going to look like in real time in today's passage. So we're going to, I did a, I'll tell you what, God bless the ladies who work in this office because they got to deal with me, right? And so, so Michelle, God love her, she, she, she dutifully does the, the bulletin. And uh, so I, I, I gave her a sermon title and then I totally changed it this morning at like 8 o'clock. So you see the term, sermon, the, the sermon title, the sermon title up on the top of the screen. Very simply, it is Paul the Council and Lessons from the Mission. Because there's lessons for us to be learned from the mission. So here we go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you up to speed real quick. You can almost, so flip back, and, flip back to Acts 20, and I'm just going to do a little, let your fingers do the walking just to bring us up to speed so we know where we're at in the story here. 
So in Acts chapter 20, verse 16, Paul, Luke tells us that Paul wanted to make it back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. In Acts 20, verse 22, he says that he is going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. In verse 23, he says that the Holy Spirit testifies me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. As we flip to chapter 21, we find Paul landing in Tyre, staying in seven days, and disciples, through the Spirit, warn him not to go to Jerusalem. Then the group moves on to Caesarea, where a prophet, Agabus, takes a belt, Paul's belt, bounds his feet and his hands and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. Paul, Paul, Paul in verse 13 says, I, I am not only ready to be in prison, but even to die for the sake of the name of the one who came for me and died for me and has brought me back to God and has purposed, me, purposed for me life way beyond this. It's no thing that I should die for him. Oh, I just got some goosebumps. Paul then arrives in Jerusalem and he's there seven days when Jews from Asia saw him in the temple and stirred up the whole crowd. Now, now we're, at, we're in chapter 21, verse 27. It says that they laid hands on him. Verses 28 and 29, and this is very important for what we're talking about today because, because this is the charge. This is the charge that is laid before the authorities. Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city and supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Verses 31 through 33 tell us, And as they are seeking to kill him, kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. So the tribune, the tribune, the one thing you can't have when you're overseeing a part under the Roman governors or under Caesar, ultimately, you can't have disorder in the place you were called to govern. Why? Worst, best case scenario, you're removed. Worst case scenario is the old head is removed. So you, you don't want there to be uprisings. You don't want there to be confusions, disorder. The Roman Empire functioned under meticulous order. So what eventually happens is, is the tribune comes and verse 33 says, arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Two chains and he inquired what was to be, what, who he was and what he had done. So then Paul's allowed to speak to the Jewish people. And he gives an impassioned plea about he, how he grew up just like them just like them, and, and attain the height of Phariseeism. And then Christ changed his life. Christ changed his life. He found that common ground. And he said, yeah, I, I hear you. And I'll tell you what, I was on the same road. I was even on the highest part of the same road. And then I met Jesus, and he changed everything. As soon as he mentioned Christ followers being sent to the Gentiles, the crowd escalates 
There's a lot of Jonah in that, right? I ain't going to Nineveh, they're sinners. They ain't us. The tribune takes him away, was going to flog him, but is made aware of Paul's citizenship, which brings us to today's passage, which has us rejoin Paul in Jerusalem. And this passage has several, what I'm calling, lessons from the mission. So verse 30, where he started our reading, tells us that the tribune still wants to get to the bottom of this. Why is there all of this commotion? Why is there this unrest? So he demands that the chief priests and all the council, that would be the Sanhedrin, kind of the ruling body of the Jews, that the Sanhedrin come together. Paul is brought in. And where does Paul start? He starts here. No, he doesn't. But he does. Paul starts here. Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, when Paul's saying that, he is not saying that he's sinless. What Paul is saying is that basically whatever revelation about who God was that was before me, I responded with zeal, obedience, a repentance, and even a faith. What a model that is for us, brothers and sisters. What a model that is for us as we carry out this day This is a question I've been asking myself is, am I living my life in good conscience before the Lord? That doesn't mean that it's perfect. There's this beauty. What what does good conscience mean in in our age right now? Good conscience means is that God has revealed himself to us. We have his revelation in his word. We have the spirit of God indwelling us. It helps us to, 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 to see the word for all it is, to commune with God through the word. The, the spirit loves to shape us to be more like Jesus in the ultimate expression of love for us. So we have this revelation and we have a, a zeal to obey out of love. I love you. I love you. You, you want what's best for me. I'm going to obey you because obeying you is best for me and I love you. And then we blow it. At least I do. And what God says is that when you blow it, repent, repent, and then end at the gospel. Even when I blew it this morning, I turned from that and I confessed that, but you know what I did? I didn't let that grind me in the dust. I said, oh, Christ even paid for that. Thank you. And that, that whole, that whole, whole sequence allows me, hopefully, imperfectly, to live in good conscience before our Lord. Before our Lord. So Paul says, look at brothers. He starts with brothers. Brothers, I've lived in good conscience before God all of my days. Well, the high priest doesn't quite see it this way. After all, to him, this man who claimed to live in good conscience was following and proclaiming a blasphemer, Jesus. This one who claimed good conscience was defiling the temple. This one who claimed good conscience was denigrating the law. Good conscience? This high priest, Ananias, was a particularly godless high priest. 
served as high priest from about 48 to 58 A.D. He was known as a glutton. He was known as one who took bribes. He was known as one who stole from temple offerings. He was known as one who was way too friendly with Rome, thereby assuring his status and power. And this godless high priest responds godlessly against the law to Paul. He tells one of his men to give him a crack in the mouth. And how does Paul respond? Well, as we learn a little bit later on in the passage, not right. Even though what he said may have been right in terms of, in terms of the content, he says, God is going to strike you, you hypocrite. You're calling me out for being a lawbreaker, and then in your calling me out, you're breaking the law. And Paul's anger draws, his outburst draws a rebuke. You're reviling God's high priest, in which Paul says, whoa, I didn't know. Now what does it mean when he says, I didn't know he was the high priest? A lot of people have posited different things. It could, it could be that Paul was out of the loop. He was out of Jerusalem for a while. He didn't, he didn't know who had ascended. Some say it was his bad eyesight, which is often called the thorn in his flesh. Or is he tongue-in-cheek saying, I couldn't tell that this guy was the high priest by the way he's acting. We don't know. Regardless, Paul recognizes he was wrong. He was threatening that living in good conscience claim by violating what God had revealed in his law. Exodus 22-28 for the exact revelation of that. can note that. So Paul backs down and, and admits he's wrong. He's, he, he's violating God's command by responding in kind. And here's where we see a, a mission lesson. A mission lesson. A mission lesson. I'm going to read it twice because, oh, look at this. The Holy Spirit of God is at work. It's appearing on the screen. I love this. So we, as we carry out our mission, brothers and sisters, remember, we're on a mission we're on a mission. Jesus is king. We're going into the world proclaiming Jesus is king to a world that, that doesn't want Jesus to be king. They want to remain king. As we carry out our mission, we will encounter godless behavior aimed at us. Rest assured, we're going to. We're going to. But that does not give us permission to respond outside of how God has commanded us to respond. And this is you know, something I, I, I see more and more in the professing Christian community is somehow the ends justify the means. Well, they're being X, Y, Z, so they deserve this. And sometimes it's couched as being faithful to God. God has called us to not revile in return. And some people would push back right there and say, oh, hey, mister, didn't, didn't Christ Jesus himself call the Pharisees a bunch of whitewashed tombs? Well, yeah, but he was the Christ calling out the hypocrisy of the religious state of the covenant nation. Christ's teachings emphasize an other 
worldly response. In Thamelios, starting on January 16th, we're going to start studying the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it is. The Sermon on the Mount is otherworldly. It's otherworldly. Christ's teaching emphasizes this. Somebody slaps you on the cheek, give him the other. Really? Really? I don't get to rail against them for their godlessness? I give them the other cheek? They ask you to go a mile, you go two. Part of our mission is to respond in such an otherworldly manner that it stuns those that we come into contact with. The essence of faith, the essence of faith, the essence of faith worked out in our lives is entrusting the situation to God and allowing Him to do this work. Just note these two passages. I'm not going to bring them up and I'm not turning there. But in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25, Paul says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Uh Uh-oh. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then he says something that just blows our mind. Oh, great. Now I'm going to be a doormat. I'm going to walk on me. But maybe God's going to grant repentance is the next thing he says. So sometimes God uses our otherworldly, I'm entrusting this to God, that posture, sometimes he uses that to do a supernatural work in the people who he has put before us. You can see hints of this in Peter's instruction. 1 Peter 3, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives. When we obey God, when we act godly, when we act Christ-like, when we obey Christ's commands in the face of whatever we are facing, that is a sign of entrusting the situation to God and God is often pleased to use that to effect great change. What is the problem, of course? The problem is this. Oftentimes, the flesh goes first. The flesh goes first. What does that mean? A situation is put before us, and maybe we, we go in, man, we're all, we're all prayed up. We've been in the Word of God that morning. We feel like we're walking near. Things are good. Then this person comes, and all of a sudden, rah! Right at him. Does that happen to you? It doesn't happen to me. Only about ten times a day. Because for some reason, the flesh gets the first say. Gets the first word. The flesh goes first. So we have, to, we, have to, we have to realize that that happens to us. We have to realize situations that do set us off. Things that we hold dear that when it's violated, we respond. And we have to, we have to do things such as we need to be in the Word of God, communing with Him. We need to be a prayerful people. We have to have a plan Man, I tell you what, I need to re- this is me. This is something I've been working on, so you can pray for me. I need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Because when I shut my mouth and just, huh, I'm letting that blow by, the flesh having the first say. 
Because no situation before me excuses a response that is outside of God's intended response for me in Christ. Back to our story. Now Paul's in the thick of it. He's got the Sanhedrin there. The high priest who he just insulted. Though he's right to some degree. Because God would strike this Ananias down, history tells us. He'd be assassinated about a decade after he was no longer the high priest. We reap what we sow. God is not mocked. The Roman tribune is there watching all this. So there's clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. And then in verse 6, now when Paul perceived that one of the Sadducees, one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. And it is respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. See what Paul does there? Paul mentions resurrection. Paul mentions resurrection. The Sadducees, who made up part of the Jewish ruling body, they didn't believe in some forms of the spiritual realm. Angels, spirits, certainly resurrection. And Paul pounces on this. This is the wake-up bomb, 100% true. This Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus, whom the Jewish people cried out, crucify him, didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. Your plan didn't work. In fact, his death and resurrection further proved that he was Messiah. Paul hurls, just hurls this glorious truth into the crowd. So I've been, I've been just studying Paul and i just enamored with Paul. And, you know, I... I've been just trying to think through, so, I'm, so I, I, the Lord calls me back to Grace Church, and here's, there's two churches that I, I, I had the privilege of pastoring in between 1.0 and 2.0. What is, what is my, what's, what's my relationship with those two churches, right? And so I've been just going back and seeing how Paul has related. And it's just, <clears throat> Paul is just so filled with the Spirit. And one of the questions I ask myself is, Paul, Paul just says, resurrection! Where does that come from? Was that Paul just being super smart and quick? He won every trivia game with the disciples? Is that what it was? I don't know. The perfect words that not only set his accusers against one another, but actually in verse 9, verse 9, causes part of his accusers, a portion of his accusers, to defend him. Where does that come from? Could we argue that those words were a manifestation of Christ's promise that we find at the end of the Great Commission? Remember those words we looked at? I am with you always. So what does that mean for us in the post-Pentecostal New Covenant age? Well, we find promises like this. So, so how, how is Christ with us? What are some tangible ways Christ's with us? Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. I'm not going to have you flipping all around, though I'm not going to apologize for having you turn to a Bible passage. So I strike that from the record. Can you edit the videotape, please? I would like to not have that in there. So go to, go to Matthew chapter 10. What are some ways? There's some very tangible ways. It's not just this nebulous, and I'm with you, not just this ethereal, uh, super spiritual, although it is very spiritual. So look at, look at, 
Matthew 10, beginning in verse 16. Because Paul's living this right now. And, and I don't think any of you are the Apostle Paul. I don't think any of you are. Marshall's claimed to be a couple times, but we've talked about that, so that's settled. But that said, there are many things that we have in common with the Apostle Paul. And we will experience like the Apostle Paul, though the circumstances may look different. So in verse 16 we find this. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Is it possible that that's what Paul was experiencing? This perfectly, carefully tailored word in the moment? I don't see why it wouldn't be. Could this be a manifestation of the very promise that God in Christ is with us always? So that brings us to a, a, a mission lesson that we could take out. As we, as we carry out our mission, as we carry out our mission, we will be faced with difficult situations. But one of God's gospel promises is that the Spirit will be with us. The Spirit will guide us. And even give us the words to say when the chips are down as a manifestation of God's gospel grace. Those promises are for us. Those promises are for us. That in turn, brothers and sisters, should make us bold and courageous. Not jerks. Not jerks. But bold and courageous. God is with us. And whatever situation we get into, being faithful to the name, we know that we are brought into that situation because God has allowed us to be brought in that situation for his glory, to have a, a witness and a testimony to the people he has allowed into that situation. And if he's allowed us and brought us into that situation, he will provide for us perfectly in that situation. That's part of the promise bound up in the good news of Jesus Christ. That's assured. That's absolutely assured. And that should make us bold and courageous. Well, the old party. It's, it's like whenever, the, whenever, the, whenever the, the Jews come, it turns violent. Isn't that wild? It's like that rowdy bunch of cousins, right? You're having this dignified family affair, and then the cousins come over, and an hour later it's a pro wrestling match in the living room. That's how it is every time the Jews are gathered and confronted with the good news about Jesus. So here the party turns violence. Turns violent. And the tribune has his men snatch Paul out of that 
and bring them to the barracks. So we'll, we'll stop and think for a second. So remember, we, we want to do our best to try to jump into a Bible. This, we're, not, we're not reading the history of the French Revolution. We're just filling our mind with facts. This is God's revelation to us of, of real people experiencing God's presence and God's kingdom and, 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 and God bringing them in a certain situation. These are real people. And you ask things like, what, what do you think Paul must have been feeling? You think he was like, do you think he was at all like, like sad? Was he frightened? Everywhere he goes, there's chaos. Everywhere you go, there's, there's hard times. There's, there's people that, that, that want to kill him. There's people that want to, to lie about him. They're, they're coming to blows over him. Even in light of God's promises, this is really important for all of us to hear. Now, I'm, I, I don't, it doesn't tell us what Paul was feeling. I'm just saying as a human being, I could understand if he'd feel this way. Even in light of God's promises, it would be understandable if Paul felt overwhelmed. We know in Paul's writings in his second letter to Corinth, chapter 1, verse 8, he, he expresses as much. Look at we despaired even to death. And it wasn't like God's promises changed. So, so don't think it's strange that even though we are totally armed with all these promises of God, all these promises of God that sometimes the battle overwhelms us. You're not alone in that. You're not alone in that. We are all there at some point in this kingdom mission. Are you there today? Maybe you're there today. You're not letting anybody see it because I know sometimes we, we come and we're gathered and we got the, we got the church face on. Is there so much before you right now that you don't see a way forward? Can't possibly see any good at all? Any good at all coming out of this situation? I just can't see it. The room is so dark, there's no way I could see the refreshing water that's sitting on my dresser. Look at what God does in verse 11. He appears to Paul. He appears to Paul. Brothers and sisters, the presence of God is always our ultimate comfort. He appears to Paul and he says, take courage. Why? Well, because Paul has a plan, or pardon me, God has a plan for Paul and nothing is going to derail it. No human government, no persecution, no Sanhedrin pro-wrestling in the parlor will thwart God's good plan and his purposes for Paul. Paul needed to hear that. He needed to hear that. He needed God's presence and he needed to hear from God. That's what we all need that's got to be where we go when we cannot see anything but darkness before us. Hmm. It's a mission lesson there. And this is the mission lesson. 
God calls us. Isn't that, isn't that just a glory? God calls us. Thank you, God, for calling me. I can't imagine trying to make sense of all of the lunacy in this world without being in relationship with God. But I was until he called me. God calls us and accomplishes certain purposes in us. His ultimate purpose is to make us more like, fill in the blank, Jesus! Where's that Sunday school answer? See, you don't have Sunday school for a couple weeks and we're already slow at the draw. God is pleased to rescue us by the merits of his Son and then take those whom he has rescued and make us like the Son. The greatest thing we could be is like the Son. God calls us and starts accomplishing those purposes in us. God calls us and accomplishes certain purposes in us and through us. The audience we have the audience we have is this formation into Christ-likeness is not there on accident. In all of its mess, in times when we're, where we're, we're imitating Christ, in times when we fall flat on our face, but we get up in repentance and say, yeah, but God's still good. Christ atoned for even that sin as egregious as it was. That is being played out. That's being played out in a theater that we're, we're people who don't know Christ, or even maybe people who do know Christ and need to see you as you're being formed into Christ. God calls us and accomplishes certain purposes in us and through us. Nothing is random. Nothing is random. Nothing is random. The evolutionary mindset is everything's random. No, nothing is random. Nothing is out of control. Rest in that, brothers and sisters. Nothing's out of control. Sometimes it feels like it's out of control. Rather, it is part of God's good plan for his children, even though it may be hard to see in the moment. We, we need to constantly preach that to ourselves and have faith that that is true. I don't remember, I, I know David Martin Lloyd-Jones, but I think he may have been quoting Luther, said, but I, I know Lloyd-Jones said this, we spend way too much time listening to ourselves and far too little time preaching to ourselves. That is so true. That's why we constantly nourish ourselves in God's promises, God's character, who he is. As you start a Bible reading plan, and Nick kind of alluded to that earlier, the goal of that reading plan is just to get to know God better. I'm gonna, I read about God parting the Red Sea. That's not some ancient God who was just like that. But no, that's your Father in heaven who parted the Red Sea. That's your God. That's your Father. We nourish ourselves in those things. We believe them to be true. And when the chips are down, when the, when the, when the way forward just seems clouded and dark, and, and those circumstances are going to speak to us, they're going to speak to us, they're going to speak doubt, they're going to speak fear, they're going to speak anxiety, we must respond by preaching a sermon, baby, about who God is, who I am in Christ, 
and what his promises are to me in Christ. God's people, and I choose this word very, very carefully, God's people experience blessedness. The first, words of the, Beat- the first word of the Beatitudes is blessed. Psalm 1, blessed is the man. And if you notice, I didn't put up there, it's actually in my notes, the original way, but God's people experience blessedness. I originally said God's people are blessed. And what I don't like about that is, well, boy, if I just obey, I'm going to get a boat. That's not what it's talking about. There is a state that we were created to be in, in relationship with God. And in relationship with God, there is, there is, there is peace. There is joy. There is hope. There is satisfaction. There's purpose and there's meaning. All of the world wants that because we were created for that. That state is what I believe is the state of blessedness. And that state travels with us from circumstance to circumstance. It's not reliant upon the circumstance. God's people experience blessedness when we walk by faith in who God is, who we are in Christ, and what his promises are to us as we carry on the kingdom mission. God appears and and gives Paul a promise. Now, don't worry about it, Paul. I got this. I got plans for you. You're going to to Rome. And next week, we're going to learn that the Jews aren't done yet, and Paul is going to have to rely on that promise God makes to him when he appears to him. He's got to keep that at the fore of his mind as things get a little bit, a wee bit hairy. Yeah, let's stop there, brothers and sisters. Feed on Christ. Let's pray, and I'd invite the musicians and those who are going to help celebrate the supper to join me. Father in heaven, we are just astounded by the fact that You loved us enough to send your son that your son would die for us, that your son would rise for us, and that your son would ascend for us and send the Spirit of God to us. And Father, that that you, the faithful God, would make such glorious promises to always be with us, always be for us, as we carry out the mission that you've rescued us into. Lord, I just pray that we would not allow circumstance to dictate our posture, but Lord, rather your person and your promises. Make us a people who are zealous to live life according to those things. And Father, help us to be zealous preachers of those things to ourselves and to others as we await our Lord's return. And we pray these things in the matchless name, the glorious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.